0: You're listening to Bad Bets, a podcast from the Wall Street Journal that unravels big business dramas that have had a major impact on our world. This season, we're looking at the collapse of Enron. I'm John M. Emschweiler. Enron's bankruptcy in December 2001 shocked everyone. Within weeks, Congress was digging in. So was the Enron Task Force. A team of federal prosecutors and investigators assembled to look into possible criminal conduct at Enron. Early on, they went after some of Enron's enablers, like the banks and auditors, and they went criminal convictions along the way. But the primary goal was to investigate the people who headed the company, former chief financial officer Andy Fastow, former CEO Jeff Skilling, and of course, the man who'd been at the top of Enron for most of its existence, former CEO and chairman Ken Lay. Stay with us.
1: Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. (laughs) Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihadprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners.
0: Ken Lay was essentially Enron's founding father. He laid the groundwork for Enron's rise to prominence in the energy sector. And then with Jeff Skilling on board... Lay helped turn Enron into one of the most successful, innovative companies in the world. But he wasn't one of those sharp-elbowed execs. Lay stood out as an easy guy to like. People who worked with Lay spoke highly of him. Here's Cindy Olson, Enron's former head of HR. He
2: was always trying to help other people. I mean, you asked Ken if he would do something, and he did it.
0: Rebecca Mark-Jusbosch, who had been the CEO of Enron International...
2: Ken was always a very supportive player. When I came forward with ideas, he was always ready to listen.
0: And Mark Palmer, Enron's former PR chief. He would have been a tremendous diplomat, frankly. Uh,
2: he, was, he was very smart and approachable, and, and look,
0: he, he was kind. Lee's reputation extended well beyond the office. In Houston, he was a big man around town. Palmer saw that firsthand. Frankly, it'd be
2: hard for me to think of something that he didn't support. You know, the arts, the ballet, the orchestra, the symphony, the the natural museum
0: of history. Lay also helped establish the Enron Prize for Public Service. Nelson Mandela, Colin Powell, Mikhail Gorbachev came to Houston to be awarded. Besides rubbing shoulders with such powerful people, Lay was a celebrity and a power broker in his own right. As my colleague, Wall Street Journal reporter Rebecca Smith observed, He had the ear of presidents. He played golf with Bill Clinton and Gerald Ford and George Bush. Both Bushes, in fact. In 1990, the elder President Bush asked Lay to help organize the G7 Summit in Houston with leaders of some of the world's largest economies. Pretty heady company for a kid who grew up poor in rural Missouri. It was, some say, one of Lay's proudest moments. Ken couldn't be a nicer person in public. Privately, he was not so nice, with, uh, with me at least. John Olson was a stock analyst who'd followed Enron since the 1980s, and he'd seen another side of Ken Lay. Ken wanted strong buy recommendations, period. He didn't care about anything else uh, when it came to uh, Wall Street. In those days, most analysts were giving Enron a buy rating. But Olson rated it as a hold, meaning don't necessarily sell your shares, but don't rush to buy anymore. Olson says Ken Lay was not happy about that rating. He complained more than once to the firms where Olson worked. And Olson says that when he was working for Merrill Lynch in 1998, Enron didn't hire Merrill for a financing deal because of his hold rating. This time, the complaint came from Enron CFO Andy Fastow. When Olson's boss found out, he flew down to Houston to chew him out, in person. He came into my office and sat down behind closed doors, and first thing out of his mouth was, Enron, how could you blow this deal? Olson says he was pushed out of the company soon after. Merrill officials later said Olson was let go due to an internal reorg, and not because of his Enron stock rating. They also said the firm's stock research activities were never compromised. By the beginning of 2004, the Enron task force had gotten guilty pleas from several former Enron executives. And then in January, former chief financial officer Andy Fastow agreed to plead guilty to two felony counts, accept a 10-year prison sentence, and cooperate with the task force's investigation. We'll tell you more about that later. In February, The task force filed a 35-count indictment against former CEO Jeff Skilling, charging him with conspiracy, fraud, and insider trading. He denied the charges. But building a case against Ken Lay, perhaps the biggest target of all, was proving a tougher task. Despite Enron's collapse into scandal, Lay was still admired by many. Plus, he was widely viewed as a relatively hands-off CEO. If criminal things happened in the financial bowels of Enron, he might not have known. Prosecutors were having a hard time directly connecting Lay to anything illegal. Lay himself insisted he was innocent. Here he is at a press conference. As CEO of the company, I accept responsibility for Enron's collapse, as I've said before. However, that does not mean I knew everything that happened at Enron. So if crimes occurred, was the Enron CEO simply in the dark? How much did he know about the LJM partnerships that Andy Fastow had created and the financial engineering? Exactly what did he know and when did he know it? Two years into the investigation, there were questions inside and outside the task force whether the former chairman and CEO would ever be charged. Then, the investigation got a fresh set of eyes. Another hard-nosed prosecutor with experience in financial fraud cases. His name, John Houston.
1: I had the advantage of being the new person in and potentially assist in indicting one of the largest targets in corporate fraud
0: history. Houston would spend the next two years conducting interviews, collecting evidence, and building the government's case against Ken Lay.
1: And, you know, we found instance after instance where we had the opportunity of showing a face of Lay different than the one that had been portrayed. And those components, I think, became critical to eroding his
0: credibility. In this episode, we'll take a hard look at Enron's most famous and enigmatic figure and how the Enron Task Force built its case against him. This is season one of Bad Bets, the story of Enron's collapse. I'm John M. Emschweiler with The Wall Street Journal. This is Episode 6, Lies and Choices. When John Euston showed up at the Enron Task Force in early 2004, it was already a couple years into his investigation. Given the magnitude of the case, he says he felt a particular pressure to leave no stone unturned in the investigation of Lay.
1: I took pride as a prosecutor in going through every piece of paper.
0: Like others on the Enron Task Force, Houston had top-notch credentials. In his case, Yale Law School, a federal clerkship, and years as a federal prosecutor, honing skills that would be helpful in the pursuit of lay.
1: What I eventually specialized in was going after corrupt politicians and financial fraud cases.
0: The task force had already tried to make a case against Lay by trying to tie him to illegal activities connected to Fastow's LJM partnerships, but that approach hadn't panned out. They had run those to the ground. But the task force had an approach that remained viable, one Houston had some success with in the past. I had quite a
1: lot of experience with what we'll call a false statements case, statements to the public by an executive, and then something else happening on the inside.
0: If you boil it down, false statements actually mean something very simple, lying. Houston says while Lay was telling investors in the fall of 2001 that the stock would rebound, he knew that things inside the company were actually dire.
1: This is a person who is giving misleading statements to the public while learning and understanding a different reality at Enron. And at the same time, covering himself with sales of Enron stock while assuring the public that they should hold on to theirs. And at that core
0: point, I thought there was a criminal case. Part of the reason Euston felt confident about that was because his arrival coincided with another turning point in the case. Enron's former CFO, Andy Fastow, decided to plead guilty and help the prosecution. Fastow was an important get. As a senior exec, he could bring prosecutors behind the curtain at Enron and onto the top echelon of the company. The way the task force convinced Fastow to flip is an example of the hardball tactics they used throughout the investigation. Initially, Fastow refused to cooperate. But then the task force used his wife, Lee Fastow, as leverage. Lee had been Enron's former assistant treasurer. They threatened to indict her on tax evasion and other charges. Here's Prosecutor Andrew Weissman. We
1: tied the two of them
0: together in
1: the sense that we told Andy, if you just plead and
0: cooperate, we will not charge her. At first, Fasto didn't agree to it. And we are just like, okay, what kind of person
1: does that when your wife is going to be charged? It was just shocking.
0: So... The government charged Lee Fastow with felonies that could have put her in jail for years. Eventually, Andy Fastow capitulated and agreed to plead guilty and cooperate. As part of the deal, his wife pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor for filing a false tax return. She was sentenced to a year in prison. Some people found it troubling that the government was willing to imprison a wife as a way to snare her husband, especially given that the couple had two young sons. One former task force prosecutor later even called the tactic brutal and callous, but it was effective. The Fastows declined to be interviewed for this podcast. However, in 2006 trial testimony, Fastow acknowledged his wife's indictment impacted his plea decision. Prosecutor John Houston says Andy Fastow was a big catch.
1: There was a lot of excitement with his plea, and so everybody flocked to
0: his initial debriefing sessions. Fastow would go on to be a key witness in Ken Lay's trial, testifying that he told Lay about deep-seated problems at the company, even while the CEO kept telling the public that Enron was strong. But if Lay was making false statements, why? What could have been his motive?
1: Don't you wish your life came with a warning app? That dog does not want to be petted. Well, life doesn't always give you time to change the outcome, but pre-diabetes does. Take the one-minute test today at doihadprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its pre-diabetes awareness partners.
0: In the first half of 2004, the Enron Task Force was building its case, trying to prove that while CEO Ken Lay was telling the public that Enron would soon be flying high again, he knew a very different reality. Prosecutor John Euston went back and analyzed everything Lay said in the summer and fall of 2001 as Enron was hitting the skids, including statements Lay made to his own employees. You might remember, Lay reassured them in August, right after Skilling resigned. You heard the same clip in episode one. Uh, we certainly think we're, we're close to, if not at the bottom of this, this, this cycle. And, uh, and we want you to enjoy the ride back up. Enjoy the ride back up. It wasn't the only time. Lay held other meetings and forums that fall where he talked up Enron's stock and the company's prospects. Prosecutors said those statements were misleading. But as anyone who binges true crime knows, motive can be an important element for criminal conviction. So if Lay was lying, what was his motive? One possibility is that he wanted to protect the company he'd built. And there would be good reason to think that. But not just because it was his baby. As you might remember from earlier in the series, some of Enron's most important deals were financed with Enron's stock. Part of the reason Enron ended up in dire financial straits. These were the same deals that added hundreds of millions of dollars to company earnings and kept like amounts of debt off the company's books, involving outside partnerships like LJM and Chuko. Supposedly independent partnerships that were run and partly owned by senior Enron officials. Enron used its own stock in some of these partnership deals as a hedge against losses to prop up those deals. Here's Harvard Business School professor emeritus Malcolm Salter, who wrote a book on Enron.
1: It allowed them to maintain the company's
2: all-important credit rating, and it allowed the company to support its
0: overvalued stock price. While such off-balance sheet transactions were common in corporate America, guaranteeing them with your own stock was not, and it left Enron extremely vulnerable to drops in the stock price. Ken Lay signed off on those transactions. He later acknowledged in court testimony that Enron was taking a calculated risk, but he said the rewards were worth the potential appearance problems. Of course, it turned out that Enron's problems would run much deeper than appearances. So, Lay's concern over the stock price could be chalked up to his concern for the company he'd run for so many years. Was he allegedly lying to investors to save Enron? To prop up the stock price and stave off bankruptcy? Maybe. But there may have been another reason. One more personal to Lay. As Enron's success grew from the late 80s through the 90s, so did Lay's compensation. But it wasn't just based on his annual salary and bonuses— it also included stock options. Stock options give employees the right to buy a company's stock in the future at a set price. If the stock price goes up, you could make a lot of money selling those shares. Enron was issuing a lot of stock options to top execs, and it wasn't a loan. We see this dramatic increase in the 90s in the amount of wealth that executives were making, and a large majority of that is connected to stock options. Ed Carberry researches executive compensation at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. During the 90s, everybody was okay with it because the economy was booming. And the idea was like, well, see, it's working. We're linking the compensation of executives to the bottom line, to shareholder wealth. According to Harvard's Malcolm Salter, Ken Lay fit that trend. By 2000, two-thirds of his compensation was tied to stock. And Salter says if Enron did really well, if company earnings grew at least 15% a year, Lay also had the right to cash in some of his stock options sooner than he would have been able to otherwise.
2: And if you can sell it earlier, it means that you can get your returns earlier.
0: So you get to put the cash in your pocket faster You get to put the cash
2: in the pocket now.
0: Salter says this incentive structure changed how Enron execs operated.
2: It means that rather than being compensated on the long term success in seven years, 10 years of the company, it provided a tremendous incentive to book profits over a two or three year period. And I think that created a lot of distortions. When the financial advantages are so great to individual executives and those financial advantages are tied to stock price, you'll do anything, you know, to basically support that uh, stock price.
0: Over the years, Lay became a very wealthy man thanks to all the Enron stock he owned and Enron's booming stock price. From 1998 through 2001, his salary and bonuses totaled $19 million according to a court filing by the Enron Task Force. That's a fortune to most. But a footnote when compared to Lay's profits from selling stock, $217 million. In July 2004, about six months after Houston joined the investigation, the task force announced the indictment of Ken Lay. It was plastered all over TV news.
2: A very busy and dramatic day for Ken Lay, the former CEO and chairman of Enron. It started quite early here in Houston. He turned himself into the FBI around 6 a.m. Central Time. He was then photographed and fingerprinted, we are told, handcuffed and brought here to the federal
1: building in Houston.
0: Here's then Task Force Director Andrew Weissman at the press conference.
1: No matter how powerful, no matter how wealthy, no one is above the law.
0: The charges included conspiracy, fraud, and making false statements. Lay pleaded not guilty, and he immediately made it clear that he wasn't going down easy. Here's Houston again. The day we announced our
1: indictment, Ken Lay held a press conference, and that was remarkable. I can still remember sitting eating lunch after the indictment, seeing Lay and his lawyers getting on the air and talking about how he was wholly innocent.
0: The Enron collapse was enormous tragedy, but failure does not equate to a crime.
1: That was like a thunderbolt to us, that we were really dealing with a much more aggressive and prepared team than you would ever normally have.
0: Houston and the rest of the task force continued chasing down leads, developing evidence. It would be another 18 months until the trial began. As Houston started building a case against Ken Lay, he wasn't just looking at the final days of Enron. He was also digging into Lay's and Enron's past. Houston says what he found there turned out to have a big influence on his view of the case.
1: I think the breakthrough here for us was the investigation of the so-called Valhalla oil trading incident in 1987.
0: Valhalla is a community in New York, just outside of New York City, where Enron had an oil trading operation. Houston had read about it from some investigative news reports about how the operation had been producing big profits for Enron in the 1980s, only to fall into scandal.
1: We felt that there was much more to the story.
0: The wheels really started turning when he spoke with David Wojtek, Enron's former vice president of auditing. He insisted that we visit him at his house. Wojtek has since died, but Houston says Wojtek told him a captivating story, a story that the task force later presented in a court filing in the Lay Skilling case. According to the court filing, beginning in early 1987, Wojtek and others had warned Lay about improper and fraudulent activities by two executives at the oil trading unit. These activities included diverting over $5 million of Enron money and falsifying records. But weeks after he found out, Lay still threw his support behind the two executives at a board meeting so they could keep their jobs. Several
1: board members expressed outrage and called for the termination of the two involved traders. And Lay's response, which Wojtek remembered specifically, was, quote, they make too much money for Enron to fire, end quote. Wojtek described to his shock and dismay that Lay did not fire these two men. And that's when I realized we were on to something
0: extraordinary. The first warning signs from Valhalla had arisen in February 1987. Then, in October 1987, it was discovered that the trading unit had piled up huge losses, making bad bets on oil prices. At that point, the two executives were let go. The oil trading mess caused an $85 million loss for Enron. In the immediate aftermath of Valhalla, Lay contended that once he found out about the wrongdoing at the oil trading unit, he acted promptly and appropriately. In a subsequent federal criminal investigation, the two oil trading executives pleaded guilty to fraud and tax evasion. Neither Lay nor Enron was charged. Bruce Collins, Lay's lawyer in his 2006 criminal trial, recently told us he thinks his client would have denied ever saying the two executives were making too much money to be fired. And the judge in that trial ultimately didn't allow the Enron task force to use the Valhalla episode as part of the case against Lay. But Houston says that long prior scandal from back in 1987 helped further convince him that Lay was capable of both overlooking crimes and committing them.
1: And when I learned of that, I thought, that's a different type of Ken Lay than the Lay that I've been hearing of.
0: In the prosecutor's view, it affirmed his lies and choices case against Lay.
1: It was an important point for me as an investigator, in part because... You know, we all want to have the sense of a good conscience. Are we doing the right thing? It's not just about winning, but do we have the right person in the crosshairs? Have they in fact done what we are suspecting them of? And that was one of those transformative moments for me. When push came to shove, and when it was time to make decisive calls in terms of wrongdoing versus protecting the bottom line of Enron, he was going to protect the bottom line of Enron. And that's exactly what he did in 2000,
0: 2001. However, he still had to show that Lay did more than just protect the bottom line. Houston needed to prove that he had broken the law in the process.
1: WSJ Special Access gives you a front-row seat to some of the Wall Street Journal's most exciting content, like The Quirkier Side of Life, a new series that features the fun, surprising stories our reporters come across.
2: The chief executive walks 10,000 barefoot steps every day. He recalls stepping on a bee, which put him off earthing for a couple of days, but he got back to
0: it. Check out the quirkier side of life on WSJ Special Access, only for WSJ subscribers. John Euston and the rest of the Enron Task Force weren't just looking deep into the archives to find potential scandals involving Ken Lay. They were analyzing every statement he made leading up to Enron's collapse in 2001. The same months during which my colleague Rebecca Smith and I had been reporting on Enron at a breakneck pace. One of the events from those months that loomed especially large for the task force took place on October 23rd. Lay held an all-employee meeting in Houston, the day after the SEC's inquiry into CFO Andy Fastow's partnerships had been announced. It's important to remember, not all of the employees were based in Houston, Enron still had lots of blue-collar workers tending to its network of gas pipelines around the country, like Johnny Nelson, who worked at a field office in Albuquerque, New Mexico.
2: We didn't know anything was going on. The newspapers didn't show anything. that They didn't care about Houston, Texas, and Albuquerque.
0: When we spoke to Nelson earlier this year, he was on a pipeline inspection job in Minnesota, Zooming with us from his truck. But back in 2001, he used to watch company meetings on videotape including the one on October 23rd. It was just
2: another one of those boring uh, videos that we had to watch, you know. If there hadn't been donuts there, I probably wouldn't have even went.
0: But Nelson remembers this video. Lay opened the meeting referencing 9-11, which had happened just over a month earlier. He said, quote, Just like America's under attack by terrorism, I think we're under attack.
2: He started the meeting kind of serious, but, but by the end of it, I thought
0: he was upbeat again. Lay downplayed the recently announced SEC inquiry, saying, quote, it will finally put all these issues to rest.
2: They had some people looking into it and that uh, it was just a standard procedure and they wouldn't find anything, any wrongdoing. And when it was over, the stock would... Uh, rebound and probably split again at $104. And uh, we'd go right back to being the number one gas producer in the world.
0: Lay repeatedly emphasized the company was going to bring the stock price back up. His positive statements reassured employees like Johnny Nelson. We thought that, you know, the investigation
2: would blow over and we'd have more money in our savings account. We believed Lay and we thought that, uh, things were looking good. We just, uh, you know, shrugged it off and went back to work. I didn't uh, I didn't think anything about it.
0: But Lay did get some pushback. During the Q&A portion of that October 23rd meeting, one employee submitted a question that Lay read out loud on stage. Quote, I would like to know if you're on crack. If so, that would explain a lot. If not, you may want to start, because it's going to be a long time before we trust you again. Lay said he understood why some employees might be angry, adding that if he had been on crack, quote, it might have been a lot easier to take the last few days. I'm guessing he was only half joking. As the stock continued to sink, Nelson too was starting to have second thoughts. Remember, Enron employees were also shareholders. Many had pensions filled with company stock. And so in the weeks after that October 23rd meeting,
2: I was panicked, and I was going to sell it all. I called to uh, to sell, and uh, I got a recording the first few times, but I kept trying, and f- finally I got a hold of the HR rep, and they said, "Well, you can't, you can't sell."
0: He was locked out of his account.
2: I said, "Well, how can I be locked out of my account?" And they said, "Well, they're changing companies, and everyone's." Uh, locked in until the freeze is over.
0: As bad luck would have it, a long-planned and previously announced move to change administrators of Enron's employee pension plan occurred as the company was entering its death spiral. During the two-week changeover period in late October and early November, employee pension accounts were frozen as the stock price fell from $13 to about $9. When the freeze ended, Nelson says, the stock had fallen so much he figured it was worth holding on to in the hopes the price would rebound. But by the end of November, Nelson's Enron shares were each worth less than a buck.
2: We thought everything was going great, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we find out that we're, we're going broke. That's when I wrote the uh, email to Ken Lay. Mr. Lay, have you ever been sucker-punched In case you haven't, let me describe it to you. First, you are stunned and shocked because you didn't see it coming. Then you realize that you can't breathe because the wind has been knocked out of you. Then you get mad when it sinks in that something like this could have even happened to you.
0: Nelson lost most of his retirement savings, which had once amounted to $500,000.
2: I have been proud to work for this company for 21 years, and now because of something out of my control, it is all gone.
0: He never heard back from Lay. Nelson acknowledges he bears some responsibility for keeping most of his money in one stock, a risky investment strategy. But like many Enron employees who did the same thing, he had great faith in his company and Ken Lay. Everyone liked uh, Ken Lay, and I even liked Ken Lay. I
2: mean, that's that's the worst part of it. He was uh, the one we trusted and uh, the most with our money and our retirement, and and he ended up blowing it all off and ended up broke. We'd have done anything he asked, you know, while we were making money. I mean, we would have. I guess we would have followed him right off the— cl- well, we did follow him off the cliff, <laughs>
0: basically. Nelson didn't know it at the time, but that October 23rd meeting became become one of the many pieces of evidence in the government's case against Enron. Here's John Euston again.
1: By October of 23rd, it was even more apparent that Enron was critically impaired and heading towards colossal multi-billion dollar losses. And he gave assurances to the employees at the all-employee meeting and outwardly to analysts that all was well when we had, we thought, overwhelming evidence that he knew to the contrary.
0: And that wasn't all. It turned out that while Lay was publicly encouraging employees to buy stock, or at least hold on to what they had, he was selling lots of his own shares, cushioning his own fall.
1: What he had done is that he had amassed large stores of Enron stock, and he used that as collateral for loans by which he would live um, his lifestyle.
0: As Lay recounted it, his financial advisors had urged him to diversify his wealth. Remember, two-thirds of his compensation was tied to stock. Rather than sell a lot of shares, he borrowed against them and put the cash into other investments. Lay said it was proof he believed in Enron's future. But when Enron's stock started falling in 2001, the value of the collateral that was securing tens of millions of dollars in Lay's personal loans also fell. Lenders demanded cash to cover the difference. So Lay started selling Enron stock back to the company to meet those margin calls. In the year of Enron's collapse, those sales amounted to over $70 million.
1: He was selling stock with the benefit of his information of the true state of Enron, information that the public itself did not have.
0: These stock sales came out when Enron made an annual filing with the SEC, shortly after the bankruptcy in December 2001. Those sales were a big crack in Lay's company man image. Now, Lay insisted he didn't sell a single share more than he had to. But Houston contended, if Lay had nothing to hide, why did he sell the shares in a way that wouldn't be disclosed for months? He understood
1: that there was a way to sell back to the company that would not require an immediate disclosure and would be a delayed disclosure. What we learned is that he was well aware of the fact that his sales would not be reported for many,
0: many months. Houston also combed through all of Lay's assets, Looking for evidence, he had other options for meeting those margin calls.
1: He, in fact, had choices each time he had one of those margin calls. He had other lines of credit available and, in fact, other stock accounts.
0: According to Houston, Lay chose to sell his Enron stock. Even though all those stock sales were legal, Houston hoped to use them to paint a picture of Lay as duplicitous.
1: He had chosen to lie and chosen to lie in his own pockets.
0: The 2006 courtroom confrontation between Houston and Lay would be a dramatic high point of perhaps the highest profile corporate criminal trial ever. Houston knew his cross-examination of Lay could make or break the case. It was a moment he'd been working towards for over two years, and he was prepared for a showdown. It's typically my goal
1: to find a way to get under their skin and to get them to explode while retaining my own composure and balance so that the jury can see that other face
0: come to bear. And I knew it was there. Would Houston be able to convince a jury that there were two faces to Ken Lay and that one of them belonged to a criminal? That's next time on Bad Bets. We have a correction to make. Senator Byron Dorgan represented North Dakota. In a previous version of episode five, we incorrectly stated that he represented South Dakota. This episode of Bad Bets was hosted by me, John M. Emschweiler. The original reporting on which this season is based was done by Rebecca Smith and me. We also relied extensively on other reporting by colleagues at the Wall Street Journal. Bad Bets is a production of the Wall Street Journal. This season was produced in collaboration with Neon Hum Media. From the Wall Street Journal, Kateri Yokum is the executive producer of this podcast. Dan Rosen is the co-executive producer of WSJ Studios. Anthony Galloway is the global head of video and audio at the Wall Street Journal. For Neon Hum Media, Muna Danish and Haley Fager reported, wrote, and produced this season. Nafala Kato is the associate producer. Story editing by Annie Gilbertson and Vikram Patel. Sammy Allison is the production manager. Sound design and engineering by Scott Somerville. And the executive producers from Neon Hum are Shara Morris and Jonathan Hirsch. This episode was fact-checked by Justin Klosko. The theme song and many of the tracks you hear in this series were composed by Hansdale Sue. The other music in this season of Bad Bets is from Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. Subscribe and listen wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Emschwaller. Thanks for listening.